I'm going to ask you to open up with me actually to 1 John chapter 4 this morning before we go to James. Uh, and before we read that, I'm also going to uh, lead us in prayer here. But uh, if you want to prepare your Bible, we'll be in 1 John chapter 4 for a brief moment before returning back to James. But let's go ahead and open in, in prayer before we jump into God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, that we may learn from it. In some cases, it's uh, a great encouragement and help to us to see greater things about you, understand you better. Other times, it's a rebuke to us because we are exposed for wrong thinking or wrong actions. And I pray that you'd help us, Father, whatever you'd have us to see this morning, that you'd open our eyes and help us to respond with willing, eager hearts to act upon what you've revealed and what you have for us today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wanted to take you back um, in history with me a little bit, um, that my personal history. Um, uh, we've been talking a lot in James about tests, and I wanted to talk about a test of significance that came up in my life, uh, uh, more in the humorous sense. Um, you know, testing is supposed to reveal what you know or expose what you are, right, so that you can be graded and assessed according to that. Well, when I was in high school, I went to a small private high school, and uh, it was at the time where Scantron test was kind of becoming a big thing, and so we had this new teacher who was teaching chemistry that year, and for the chemistry test that we took, it, it didn't go well. Um, many of us, uh, even I had, a, I had a best friend at, uh, at the time who ended up going to West Point, was like a 4.0 student, very sharp guy. Uh, he only got an 80-something on the test, which was very unusual. But my other friend, who wasn't as sharp academically, got a 13% on his Scantron test, 13%. Now, just if you're looking at the form there, this is very typical what the forms were. They have, you know, A, B, C, D, E, or one, two, three, four, five, right? So we teased this friend of mine up and down because there were only five possible answers in every question, maybe some of them were only four. If you had guessed the same number or the same letter for every question, you should have gotten a 20 or 25 percent. So we, we teased him crazy that uh, he had to have known the right answer and on purpose put the wrong one to get a score that low. Well, the teacher, because she was a new teacher and she saw that everyone did terrible on this test, felt so much, uh, so bad for this one kid in particular who got the 13 percent that she ended up marking up his grade 47 points, so essentially he got a 60%, and in case, my friend who got the 80-something percent was the real smart, got over 100, right, because she felt so bad for this guy. Well, come to find out, to, to let you know, so you know, we gave this guy a terribly hard time. He got razzed so bad about getting a 13%, and he, you could tell eventually it wore on him, and he was really frustrated. But eventually what happened was the teacher discovered that the Scantron had two different test settings and she had actually run his through on the wrong setting. So when she ran it through on the correct setting, he got a grade that fell very much similar to the rest of us. So 
She did, though, however, allow us to keep these, this 47-point curve that she added to all of our scores um, in spite of that. But it was a great time to make fun of our friend, and it all worked out in the end, right? So testing is supposed to reveal what we know. It, it exposes what we've learned, what we've absorbed, right? And we've been talking in James on how there are these different tests for our faith. And the purpose of these tests of our faith is not to mark us as a 60% or an 80%. The point is actually all or nothing, essentially. That's the point of these tests. They expose whether our faith is genuine or not. And in this case, what we're talking about in, in James chapter 2, and as we continue from where we left off last week, the focus is actually on our relationships and how we respond to people. And that's why I wanted to start with 1 John chapter 4, because John is on a very similar theme to what we see in James, and I think it explains very well this concept of the test of how we respond to people. How do we respond to people is actually a reflection of our relationship with God. We, we, we uh, as human beings, sometimes compartmentalize things, and we have this thought that I can love God and how I treat people doesn't matter. But uh, God tells us that's not true. How we treat people is actually a reflection of our relationship with him. So look with me at 1 John chapter 4 and verses 20 and 21. There John writes, If somebody says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. He says, and this is the command we have for him, that we, the one who loves God should love his brother also. So we see here there is a connection between our relationship with God and our relationship with other believers. If we truly love God, we are going to love other believers who are also born of God. It only makes sense. They're part of God's family. And so if there is an inconsistency, we say we love God who we can't see, and yet we have a demonstrated behavior pattern of hating those we can see, it is an indication that our profession of loving God isn't accurate, isn't true. So I want you to turn back with me at, uh, and go back to James chapter 2, where James is talking about how we treat people. Now, he's using the illustration here, and I'll review some of the things we covered last week because uh, we're going to actually focus on verses 8 through 13 this morning, but we covered 1 through 7 last week. So just by way of reminder, James says in verse 1, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. So, he states the principle there in verse 1, saying that we are commanded not to exercise personal favoritism. It is incompatible with faith to behave this way. And he illustrates this in verses 2, two and 3, where he talks about in the assembly or in the church. He talks about there comes into the assembly some visitors. So that I mentioned last week, um, maybe he's talking here about unsaved people, uh, or at least it's uh, believers that the local assembly didn't know, 
Um, but he talks here about the assembly, that is the gathering of God's people, and visitors come in. There's two different kinds of visitors come in. There's one that has a gold ring and fine clothing, so the obvious implication is it's a rich person. And the other person that comes in is a poor person, as he says, and uh, this person has filthy clothes, dirty clothes, probably smelly, stinky, unsightly clothes. But he talks about the response in verse 3 to those two different kinds of people. He says, what you do is you say to the rich person, hey, come here, take this good seat. And you say to the poor person, you sit over here at my footstool, or basically sit on the floor. And, and I used the illustration last week to talk about uh, how uh, Joanne and I went to China and how the kids there would not sit on the floor because the floor is very, very dirty. Um, and, and we should understand in that kind of context, this is a very insulting thing that's being said to the poor person. And now what's the motivation of a person acting this way? The, the idea is the rich person can do something for us or for me. So that's why the rich person gets treated favorably, but the poor person can't give us anything, can't do anything for us, and may be a detraction for other people to come to the church or to be around. So this person, let's get them out of the way and not give them anything special. And James points out that that is wrong. That is inconsistent with faith in Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you've come to trust in him, you are a poor, rotten sinner. And you've come to recognize that, and you have nothing to give to God on your behalf to make you accepted to him. So when you treat people this way, you treat the rich better than the poor, you're acting according to the standards of the world and not according to God's standards. So he tells them that this is inconsistent, inappropriate, and not how they should behave. If they're doing this, he says in verse 4, you've made distinctions. You've caused there to be separation. Now, in the church, you're saying there should be a rich class and there should be a poor class. When the Bible tells us that in Christ, those distinctions don't matter. The cross is leveling. We all come as needy sinners to the cross needing forgiveness. doesn't matter if we're rich or poor. doesn't matter our race. It doesn't matter our heritage. Um, as, a, as a contrast, my, uh, my wife, Joanne, her family is full of believers. Her, her grandfather was a preacher of the gospel. Her dad is a preacher of the gospel. Very faithful man. Her brothers and sisters have all made professions in Christ. There are cousins and second cousins who know the Lord. There is a great heritage in her family. But that doesn't mean she's right with God because of that heritage. She, too, had to come to accept Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior in order to have a right standing with God. In my case, I come from an unsaved family. I'm not sure other than me there is a believer in my family. But that, too, didn't keep me away from coming to the cross. God worked in my heart. Of course, you understand it wasn't my own merit. It was the work of God. It was the work of the Holy Spirit to draw me to himself. But our heritage doesn't guarantee that we're going to be right with God. It is personal faith in Jesus Christ, responding to the gospel, trusting in him. The economics don't matter. Our heritage doesn't matter. Our skin color doesn't 
matter. We are equal on an equal footing before Christ, and to treat people differently in the congregation is to deny those truths. And James is giving a very serious warning about that. And he tells in verse 5 and 6 the reasons why they uh, were wrong in, in having this kind of attitude. He explains, he gives the proof here of their failure. He says in verse 5 that they... Uh, they uh, have dishonored the poor of the world, and yet God talks about the poor often as those whom he honors. So by acting this way, by preferring the rich over the poor, they're acting contrary to the way that God speaks. And also in uh, verse 6, it tells us that they were honoring the rich whom in, in, in these particular cases, he was talking about them as oppressors. The rich are often oppressors, taking advantage. Of course, that's not universally the case. But speaking in generalities here, um, they are often oppressors. They also, in, the, in, the, in that day and age, it talks about the, the rich were the ones dragging them into courts. They were the ones that had the money to have lawsuits and, and bring charges against them. In fact, the rich also, in verse 7, it said, are often the ones that blaspheme the name of the Lord. And yet they were honoring those people, very contrary to God's approach to things and God's view. And so he gives here, in verses 8 through 13, his final reason why this attitude is wrong. And he says it's because it is simply disobedience. It is disobedience to God. So let's look at verses 8 through 13 this morning. We'll read those, and we'll go back through them a few times. But let's read them this morning and talk about how this kind of favoritism is disobedience to God, as James argues here. Verse 8, starting there, it says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convinced by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we see here our focus is on disobedience in this chapter, uh, the, the rest of this section, and it is a uh, simple statement he makes here in talking about the law. In verses 8 and 9, he's going to talk about disobedience to the law, and we have to answer some questions about this here. He does start with an if. He's been using this example in verses 2 and 3 and how they responded to these different types of people. And he says, if, in contrast to what he's been saying, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So he uses the term royal law here. Now, this is a little bit technical, but I think it's important to understand what James is getting at. The question is, what does royal law refer to? What is the royal law? If you look at this phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you'll find that exact phrase in Leviticus 19.18. So the question then is, is this a reference to the Old Testament law, and is James then saying 
that they were obligated to obey the Old Testament law. Well, I think it's better if we turn to Matthew 22 and see what Jesus says, and he, he uses the same language in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is asked a question. We're going to look at verses 36 to 40 there. Jesus is asked a question by a teacher of the law. He says, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Verse 36 of Matthew 22. Jesus answers and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now they would have expected this answer because that answer is also found in Deuteronomy 6. It talks about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Um, so he says that. That's, that's the greatest. But however, he goes on and adds to that. He says this is the greatest and foremost commandment. He says, verse 39, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. So what Jesus is doing here is he's summarizing the intent of the law and prophets is around those two commandments, that they're to love God and they're to love others. And we see uh, at times someone asks him, what does it mean to love your neighbor? Or who's my neighbor is the question, right? The parable of the Good Samaritan. And he tells them a, a parable about a Samaritan. And if you know anything about the Jewish people at that time, they hated the Samaritans. And yet Jesus is pointing out anyone who has a genuine need and we're able to help should be viewed as our neighbor. We are to love and help those who have genuine needs, even if they are of a different race, even if they are of a different social class, even if they are different from us, we should love our neighbor as ourselves. So what I see here going on in James chapter 2 is he's actually referring to the words of Jesus in regards to his summarizing the Old Testament law and uh, in those two principles, and therefore he's referring to that. And that's significant because the New Testament believers, we are not under the law. There's, there's many questions nowadays about what is the role of the Old Testament in the life of the New Testament believer. And I would just run you through a couple things really quickly to illustrate. I, I brought a printout I did uh, a few years ago up in our church at uh, Maranatha and Flint, I did a whole series on the law and the New Testament believer, and I have some extra copies. If you're interested in that, I'd be happy to share that with you. can go into it in much more detail, but I would just summarize a few points for you this morning. Um, number one, the Old Testament law has been set aside for New Testament believers. We are not under the law. In fact, Romans 7 tells us that we are dead to the law. We are dead to the law. We, we as New Testament believers are not under the Old Testament law. And, and therefore, also, we're not subject to its curses. We, however, are not without law. There is still governing laws that apply to us. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 9 and see an example of it there. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 21. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 21. I think this passage in 1 Corinthians 9 has been abused by a lot of people to say, hey, Paul did whatever it took to reach people, and he went to all extents and lengths to reach people. 
But I think what Paul is actually saying is he limited his freedom. Instead of exercising his freedom to do whatever he wants to reach people, his point was he limited his freedom in trying to reach people, not that he went beyond what he should have done. In fact, that's what he's saying in verse 21. He says in, in 9, he says, To those who are without the law, as without the law. I think we should understand the law there being the Old Testament law. Because he says, though be, not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that it may win those who are without the law. So Paul is saying, even in his efforts to reach people and his flexibility, he's still under a law. And what is that law? It's not the Old Testament law. It's the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is centered around these two commandments we just read about in Matthew 22. Galatians 6.2 also has a very similar concept. You look with me at Galatians 6.2. It talks about the law of Christ as well. It says... If uh, 6.1, starting there, and then 6.2, it says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. See, what is binding on the New Testament believer is the law of Christ, and it is... Uh, summarized in the principles he said there with the two greatest commandments of loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and also loving your neighbor as yourself. And we, and we saw in James 1, uh, 26 and 27, he talks about true religion, undefiled before God. What is it? It's to take care of the widows in their affliction, right? And to keep yourself unspotted from the world. We could cite those as two examples of the same principles. To love God with all your heart, mind, and soul is to keep yourself from sin, to remain unstained from the world, and to take care of the widows and orphans is to fulfill the loving of your neighbor as yourself. So we see those principles throughout the New Testament. So what is binding on the New Testament believer? Is James just here citing the Old Testament saying that's binding on you? No, I believe he is referring to the law of Christ, and that is what he's drawing their attention to. So if you fulfill the royal law or the law of the king, that is of Jesus Christ, you're doing well, is what he says here. You are doing well. We also could read, in, uh, we, we did read in Galatians 6.2 how to bear one another's burdens is an example or an application of loving others as ourselves. Therefore, it is a fulfillment. Uh, Romans 13.8 also talks about love being the fulfillment of the law. So he's saying here, if you're doing those things, you're doing well. However, he doesn't stop there. He says in verse 9, um, in spite of saying, if, if you're doing those things, you'd be doing well, he says, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin, and you're convicted by the law, as transgressors. So, to treat people unfairly is obviously, therefore, a, a, a sin. Um, and unfairly in the sense of we're showing favoritism. There is a favoritism on the rich in this example, and that is an unloving way to treat people, which therefore is a sin and breaks the law of Christ that they're obligated to keep. So, we talked about the concept of loving your neighbor as yourself. Think about it. 
Put yourself in the shoes of the poor person. Do you want to be treated that way if you were to visit a church and you get ushered in to sit on the floor while everyone else has a good place to sit? Obviously not, right? That is an unloving way to treat people. And therefore, he is saying it is a violation. They've committed sin. It is wrong. But he's also pointing out that it's not only disobedience to the law of Christ, it is also disrespect for the person who gave the law. It is disrespect against God. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says, For whosoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So I know this is a very familiar passage. Um, The idea here is is simple. Um, Doing well in one area doesn't mean we're not sinning in another. He talks here about adultery and murder as two examples of sins. there's some question whether he is accusing them by being uh, favoring the rich, if he's actually accusing them of murder. I'm not sure if that's the case. I think his point is simply, you may think you're doing well. Maybe, maybe their mindset was they're loving the rich person, right? But his point is, uh, one offense is enough to make you guilty. And doing some good doesn't erase the bad. I think one of the fa- my, my favorite and a very common Old Testament example of this is King Saul. You remember King Saul? King Saul was commanded by Samuel to go and wipe out the Amalekites and to kill all the people and to wipe out all the animals as well. Remember that? Because they had attacked the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness and therefore God was bringing judgment on them, and he wanted them wiped out. That's what Saul was supposed to do. Well, Saul kept the king alive. That's the picture here of the, of the king. And he's got a bunch of animals because they were offering sacrifices to the Lord, remember? And Samuel shows up and said, why did you disobey what God said? And Saul is confused. What do you mean? I've obeyed. And and Saul says, uh, we're going to sacrifice these animals to the Lord. And, and Samuel points out, you're supposed to wipe everybody out, including all the animals. And he says, uh, let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 15, 22. 15, 22, a familiar passage, but he talks about this and saying, your desire to obey by sacrificing uh, isn't acceptable because it's disobedience. So an act that's supposedly of worship is actually disobedience. He says, uh, Samuel says in 22, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. So we have here uh, a clear uh, indication that... uh, Trying to do something that may seem good, but is disobedience, is just plain disobedience and not accepted to God. And, and we have here in James chapter 2 his point that you do 
this thing wrong, you're violating the law. You are therefore lawbreakers. You may have many other good things going on, but you're disobeying in this, therefore you're sinning, and you need to repent. But we also see he's going to point out here uh, in our third point about this, he is going to point out that a, a consistent pattern of treating people this way may be an indication of an unbelieving heart. It may be a demonstration of an unbelieving heart. Look at verses 12 and 13 with me. He says, So speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be, without, will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So now he says, first of all here, behave in light of coming judgment. So he's making the point, judgment is coming. We know from Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. Judgment is universal. We're all going to be judged. We're going to be judged for our lives. Is it a demonstration of a, a true faith in Christ, or is it going to be a judgment based on works that we obviously would be punished because we are sinners? Um, judgment should be a motivator. He's saying, hey, act and speak knowing you're going to be judged. So he's calling them to consider this, and the standard of the judgment, he says here, is the law of liberty. Ultimately, our judgment is going to be based upon whether we have come to trust in Jesus Christ or not. If we have trusted in Christ, the judgment we face will be that of evaluating the works that we've done for Christ and whether they are worthy of honor or whether they're going to be lost because they were ill-motivated or the, the wrong kinds of things done. But the Bible tells us 1 Corinthians will still be saved in that case. But for those who have not come to trust in Christ, those who don't have faith in him will be judged by their works and they'll be condemned. So the standard is the law of liberty here. And he also points out that judgment will be merciless. Verse 13, for those who have shown no mercy. Now, let's think through this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we understand that we'll be evaluated based on our works, but those things we've done with the wrong motives will be burnt up. We won't receive the rewards for those. But there'll still be mercy because we ourselves will be saved, Paul says there. There will still be saved. So what is he talking about? There'll be merciless judgment. Well, it can only mean he's referring to those who don't know Christ. They are the ones who are going to have a merciless judgment. And... I believe his point here is very similar to what we saw in Matthew chapter 18 about the parable of the unforgiving servant. So we did cover that a couple months ago, but I'll just walk you through it real quick because I think the same principle applies here about mercy. We saw in that parable how there was a king who represented God, and to that king were owed great debts. And there was a particular servant who begged and begged that he wouldn't be killed or, or sent into slavery or bondage, um, him and his whole family, because of this debt. And the servant's response was, because I will pay you back, essentially. Just give me time. Well, the king decided to let him have time. So what the man went out and did then is he started pursuing those who owed him money. So he comes up to this, this man with the red shirt and says, hey, you owe me some money, basically, 
and uh, you need to pay up. Well, the man couldn't pay right away, so he's choking him, threatening him to get the money from him, and essentially he throws the man in prison uh, until he can pay him back. Well, what happened was some other servants in the kingdom saw all this go down. They saw the first man uh, get mercy from the king to not be sent into slavery, not to be punished for his debt, and his debt was mammoth, uh, uh, beyond a lifetime of debt, and yet he didn't have to pay that back, and he was let go, and yet this man has somebody that owes him much less, and he won't forgive. He won't let it go. Well, what we see then is the this other servants go and tell the king about this, so the king then goes and calls that first servant back and basically says, you're a wicked servant. I was willing to let you go all this debt, and you won't let someone who owes you much less go with what they owe you. So you're going to be tormented and, and uh, not be free until you can pay everything in full, which is clear he never could. Now the point of this whole parable is to illustrate if you claim to be a child of God who has received forgiveness from God for a debt greater than you could ever pay, and yet you cannot forgive someone else who's wronged you a much smaller debt than what God would have forgiven you. It is a demonstration that you've not truly come to know Jesus Christ. Because if you've been forgiven a debt that great, you really understand you've been forgiven that great of a debt, you would be able to forgive. We are to be conduits of forgiveness, right? We receive forgiveness, we give it out, not a cul-de-sac. A cul-de-sac is a part of a neighborhood that you go in, there's a circle, and it doesn't go anywhere, right? That is not how we are to be about forgiveness. We are to forgive as we've been forgiven. And the point in Matthew 18 is similar to what we see here in James 2.13. If you won't, in Matthew 18, if you won't show forgiveness, it's a demonstration you don't have it. And if you won't show mercy here in James 2.13... It's a demonstration you're failing the test and you don't really know the mercy of God and therefore ultimately unless you repent of that and truly come to know Christ, you're going to get a merciless judgment. So it's a very, very severe warning here in James that we need to show mercy because if you're a child of God, you've received mercy. Ephesians 2.4 tells us that God is rich in mercy after telling us at the beginning of chapter 2 about how wicked we are against God. And yet it tells us the rest of Ephesians 2 about God's great mercy. He's rich in mercy. He's forgiven us. He gives us forgiveness through uh, faith and, and, and grace working our lives. He's rich in mercy. So how can we who claim to know him not show mercy? It doesn't make sense. And what he's ultimately warning is, if you have the characteristic pattern of your life that you do not show mercy to people, it is a demonstration you haven't truly come to receive his mercy. So it is a very serious warning. We're told also, though, in Matthew 5.17, or 5.7, that blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And I believe that's his point at the end here. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you show mercy and the characteristic pattern of your life is to be a merciful person to other people, it is a demonstration of God's work in your life that you truly have come to know Christ and 
uh, therefore will be shown mercy in the judgment. So, in conclusion, as we started in 1 John chapter 4, we see that to love God means we will love and be kind to other people as well, especially those of the household of God. If you're a child of God, you will be kind to your brothers and sisters. It doesn't mean you will, have, you will never have a moment of struggle or frustration. Of course we will. We'll have moments. But again, the point is the characteristic pattern of our lives. If you love God, that will be reflected in how you treat other people. If you are unmerciful, if you show favoritism according to the standards of the world and that's your pattern of operating, that would be a, an indication that you're failing the test. Maybe, like we talked about at the beginning uh, with, the, with the test, maybe you think you're getting a 60% or an 80% or an 87 or 90 or whatever, and maybe you're just struggling a little bit. But James tells us if you're failing the test, ultimately you've broke the law, you're a sinner. If you're characteristically failing this, it is an indication of great concern to make sure you truly know God as you claim to know. So, we are to love people. We are to love people as Christ loves people. We are not to make distinctions among people, especially in the church. We are to love and embrace fellow believers in Jesus Christ. And we are also to love and embrace those who may come to visit the assembly in the hopes that God will, if they don't know God, that God will show mercy in their lives and we could perhaps be an instrument of sharing the good news and the gospel with them. So we need to be careful, as James warns, not to show favoritism, but to have a genuine faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you give us your word to help us understand how we are to live. We thank you, Father, for all that you've done in Jesus Christ. We thank you that through him we can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Uh, we thank you that you are merciful and, and gave your son to sinners who don't deserve it. Help us, Father, if we know Christ, to remember how much you've forgiven in our case and therefore how joyful we should be at what you've done for us and how eager we should be to see your work of transformation in other people's lives also. Help us to be loving other people, accepting other people who are different, embracing uh, others so that we can see your work in their lives and be an instrument of that work in their lives and help us father to be merciful and loving and not hateful and we ask these things in jesus name amen